This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And this is indeed Brooke Spector, and this is indeed the Deep Dive. And I'm very pleased today to welcome you to listen to a conversation with somebody I've been reading for years, and I've met just a few times, R.W. Bill Johnson, journalist, political scientist, historian, he was born in England, but uh, he was educated in part in South Africa at uh, University of Natal, now KZN, and Oxford University in Britain, obviously, as a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, he's written a long list of books and studies and a list far too long to go into of articles and uh, longer essays uh, for newspapers and uh, online and various other places. He did his own uh, political science research in political change in West Africa. And I think one of the things that intrigues me most about much of his writing, he doesn't treat South Africa as a unique, sui generis kind of place. He has the background from the rest of Africa to put South Africa's developments into a comparative context that doesn't make this place look like it is entirely and completely unique and new to the world. And I think that's, that it helps to make him stand out from others. But I must say uh, that the book that I read most recently by him was a memoir of Foreign Native, I think it was, which is incisive and thoughtful as his writing always is, but it's funny. It's also funny. The man has a great sense of humor. And so I am pleased to welcome him uh, to our program today. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. And I, one of the things that intrigues me about your uh, writing, and I was trying to find a way to put a, a, to come up with a context for it. You have been in South Africa, obviously, for many, many years, but you've got the comparative focus Africa, Europe, and other places. And I tried to think of a, of, a, of a comparative for you, and I began to see you as a kind of contemporary Cassandra. You're, you're blessed with the ability to, to see the future, but nobody's listening, or at least in some cases, very few people are listening. And how, how, what's your reaction to that? Well, I don't see myself as particularly a, a pessimistic person. I'm actually fairly optimistic about a lot of things, probably more than my wife, for example. But look, I think what you're referring to is that in that era after 94 in this country, where there was this tremendous euphoria, partly to do with Mandela, Rainbow Nation, all that sort of thing, one could see a lot of things going very badly wrong very soon almost immediately, really. And if you had any experience uh, historically and politically elsewhere, you knew that this was, was going to be trouble and you could see it coming. And I found myself in that position in that period, which is probably when uh, I would have been cast as a Cassandra. But really all it was, to be quite frank, was that South Africans, knowing only their own country, and usually imperfectly, were very naive about the situation and didn't seem to register many of the things that were going on. Now, of course, that came back to bite them later on. But 
then I found that the opposite was the case, that everyone was turning to me saying how tremendously disillusioned they were and saying, you must be too. And I would say, well, no, I'm not really, because I, I never had that illusion. Uh, you know, I expected it to be rather like it is. And uh, so I'm, I'm not disappointed in that sense. It's more or less what I expected. Well, you've mentioned your, your wife uh, just in passing. Uh, her name, of course, is Irina Filatova. She was on the show a couple of months back when we were trying to get a, a measure of Vladimir Putin. And I thought that of all the people I could think of in this country, given her unique circumstances, having been raised and brought up and educated and uh, having worked uh, in, uh, in uh, Soviet Union and then Russia, she was the natural person to do it. But uh, as you say, she probably was was even more of a disillusioned person about that regime um, than, than most. And of course, uh, she lives here now with you. So you were, you, you, you're not disillusioned, you're simply, uh, you would argue then, I guess, that you've been clear-sighted from the beginning, or your vision was relatively unclouded, given the ability to understand the dynamics of political evolution in societies. Yes, look, like everybody else, I made mistakes. And like everybody else, there were things that I missed, uh, which I shouldn't have. Uh, that happens. But uh, yes, basically what you're saying is correct. You might find it interesting. This morning's New York Times has a whole section of its main columnists, each of whom has written a, a uh, a column saying what it was they didn't understand and the mistakes they made in their prognosis of society and their guesstimates about the future. Uh, do you ever do you ever think that maybe it's time to write an essay saying this is what I know and this is what I found to be wrong? I haven't thought of doing that. Or I mean, you know, I'm not sure that my own mental processes are sufficiently interesting to other people to do that, frankly, but. It's probably a good intellectual exercise to do just that. I mean, it forces, you know, it, it, in a sense, uh, I mean, David Brooks's column uh, is, is the one that I like the most. And he talked about his own political trajectory, excuse me, trajectory from being um, sort of a, a, a semi-Marxist, democratic socialist kind of young person to an arc that carried him over to the Wall Street Journal and now has brought him to the New York Times as sort of a, a, a leftist moral critic. And at each, at each way station, he, he realized that he had mi he'd misunderstood the future as it was barreling down the tracks. Yes, I, I, I think, well, look, you know, my own uh, intellectual trajectory has been somewhat similar. I started out in this country very much on the left, supporting Congress of Democrats, ANC, and so forth. And, but I've always found that there was a, a peculiar disjuncture in the sense that, you know, uh, out here, I would often be referred to as a conservative. And yet, you know, while I was in Britain, I always voted for the Labour Party. I advised Labour politicians. Uh, I was very much on that side. And I did a lot of work in France where... Uh, I had very good contacts inside the French Communist Party and where I, I had very good friends inside that party too. So, you know, that part of my life there was always firmly on the left. And 
I found it was really rather strange when somebody like Anthony Sampson, who in British terms was to the right of me, but would then come out here and be to the left of me, as it were, uh, because here he would be very ANC and so forth, and I had moved on from that. But, you know, this, this as I say, the, these things are not really all that interesting to anybody else but yourself. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we're gonna continue this conversation. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And we are back. This is indeed Brooke Spector, and we are today uh, delighted to have uh, R.W. Bill Johnson uh, on air with us, uh, historian, political scientist, critic, both of the right and the left, I think, fair to say, or critic in the angry critic in the middle, or um, and uh, also, as I was mentioning, we did really, really good writer of trenchant, thoughtful criticism, commentary, and analysis. Um, if you had to uh, categorize the main critique of your, the main, your main critique of contemporary South African political development, how would you phrase it? I mean, I know you've written on all, on all aspects of it, but what, what's the core part of the problem as you see it? Well, I suppose, you know, if you stand back, you can say that under apartheid, uh, the white leadership tried to behave as if black people didn't have any role in running the country and that they even went as far as you remember to, to uh, suggest that black people weren't part of the country at all and that they were really citizens of Bantustans and so forth. And that didn't work and it didn't deserve to work. And of course, you know, it's ridiculous that a minority group should think that it alone can just run the whole country without needing other people. But the ANC is doing exactly the, the same thing um, only trying to manage without white people. And uh, so that if you appoint such a person like uh, Andre de Reta at ESCOM, there is a huge, um, you know, outpouring of anger and grief that a white should be appointed at all. Uh, and this is ridiculous. I mean, we need all the skills uh, that are available in the country and then some. But to voluntarily say that uh, you, you will do without uh, the skills of uh, probably, you know, the best educated part of the population is simply crazy. And I, I would say that's, you know, the biggest single fault, really. And it runs through so much. If that's true, um, does the recent decision by Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Gordon that uh, to, to ask... Uh, solidarity to show us the list and give us the names of people we can call back to help out and solve ESCOM's problem or problems. Is that a sign of hope, despair, or desperation? I would think desperation, really, because quite clearly, I mean, we know that those people were got rid of long ago and that huge numbers of people without skills were recruited in their place and that that's been a large part of the problem at ESCOM and indeed all the other state-owned enterprises. And, you know, it should never have happened. And uh, that was done 
pretty early on, I think by 2000 or thereabouts. And, you know, that has been the situation for more than 20 years now. And at any stage, the ANC could have tried to remedy that. So here we are in 2022, and it's suddenly occurring to Travin Gordon that this would be a good idea. But you have to ask, you know, why didn't this idea surface in the previous 20 years? And why on earth was... Uh, did you get rid of these valuable people to start with? I mean, it, it's, it's crazy stuff. A couple of years back, you, you wrote a book. Um, it was more of a, some people called it a diatribe. I, I, I thought it was a, sort of a concerned citizen's angry cry uh, about whether or not South Africa can or will or should survive. And in it, uh, you posed what was the, the existential question, can the country even hold itself together sufficiently? Are you more of a mind to think it can now or less? No, look, I think it's a permanent question for a country like South Africa. Any country which has consisted previously of separate countries, those lines of division remain both in people's minds and hearts, potentially could be brought to life again. You can see this with Ukraine and Russia and so on. Now, you know, this used to be four different countries uh, and then lots of other bits and pieces surrounding them. And those people know, you know, they still have in their heads that there's a world which is Natal, KwaZulu-Natal, there's a world which is Western Cape and so on and so forth. And so if the system fails, which is clearly what has happened and which is happening, then one of the possible recourses is bound to be, oh, well, we would have been better off if we had just stayed with that smaller unit. And uh, at least we can control what goes on there, so to speak. And, you know, I happen to have spent a lot of my life living either in KZN or in uh, Western Cape. And both those places have that feeling that they are a world to themselves and that uh, they could make sense of themselves as separate entities, which, of course, they used to be. And uh, I think that remains a permanent possibility, uh, one removed. I mean, and you can see how all sorts of things <coughs> could trigger that. For example... If at the next election, the ANC fails to get 50% and needs to make some sort of deal with another party in order to re retain a majority, the easiest deal probably would be with the EFF. Um, it wouldn't uh, trigger the same problems as a deal with the, the larger DA would. And if they made that, and if you ended up with, say, Malema and Shivambu in the cabinet, there would inevitably be in, say, Western Cape, a strong reaction of people saying, well, we don't want to wait around for that. We really don't want to live under a government with those sort of guys in it. We'd be better off on our own. And without any doubt at all, a development like that would produce that sort of reaction in the Western Cape. Uh, and I'm not saying they'd go all the way to independence, but it would certainly strengthen all those sort of autonomous, push, the push towards greater autonomy and to be less under that regime. And 
So, I mean, there are things like that which can happen at any stage which would trigger those responses. There was a time when we, when I think most people thought that once a border had been defined and a country had been designated, uh, well, okay, that was, that was how it was. And then post-Cold War, or in the last stages of the Cold War, certainly Yugoslavia suddenly became a collection of independent feuding and in some cases bitterly warring smaller nations, and sometimes even within individual new nations. There was uh, in the country, country formerly known as Czechoslovakia a realization that the two halves of the country weren't natural fits for each other, even though language and custom and history overlapped to a considerable degree and, and politics had been similar for quite a while. And yet at the same time, East Germany and West Germany did come together. And there are people, of course, who remember there used to be a Somalia that uh, Somaliland and Somalia were one country united in their disunity. And now for all intents and purposes, Somaliland sees itself as a separate country. And even in the United States, um, there are people who argue it's not particularly united much anymore, and that there are, in fact, what amounts to almost two different countries. And the, the distinguishing factor for America is that the, territory, the territorial continuity of the two halves are not easily broken apart, and that may be its saving grace. Uh, what you're saying to me, it seems, is that South Africa is sufficiently fragile as a unitary state, state that it, it would not take all that much energy or political uh, development to push it in the direction of becoming yet one more nation that has discovered its greater purpose lies in disunity than in unity. Yeah, but it's also to do, I mean, if you think of the Soviet Union, when, you know, Khrushchev in the early 60s said that the, the next generation will live under communism. By the early 80s, we will have reached the stage of communism. And, you know, that sort of promise hung in the air for a long time. Now, by the 80s, it was clear that that hadn't happened and there were still queues and shortages and the system was breaking down. And in a sense, Gorbachev was a response to that. And then it all broke up. Now, as it broke up, all the constituent parts became autonomous or independent. So you got 15 countries rather than one. And, you know, that was a natural response to the failure of the system. Now, in, this, in a sense, you see, I mean, while everyone thought the Soviet Union was succeeding, it was growing fast, it was winning the space race, etc., then fine, uh, people could all agree that they were happy to be part of it, or pretty much so. But once a system fails, then all bets are off and old lines of division, which you might have thought didn't matter, come back to life with a vengeance, and the result is that. Now, quite clearly in South Africa, uh, the whole experiment of the ANC government has failed, tremendously failed. Uh, I mean, and, and clearly, I mean, I noticed Ibrahim Harvey last week writing an article saying straightforwardly that the black working class has now much worse conditions than it does under apartheid. And that's clearly true. 
a much higher unemployment, more poverty, more inequality, uh, etc., and much worse hospitals, probably worse schools, and so on. Now, if you get to the point where the population says, well, look, it's failed, that we, we tried it out, we wanted it to work, but it didn't work. At that point, then, as I say, other older divisions come back to life with a vengeance. And uh, it's not surprising that you can already see some of that in South Africa, but uh, we, you know, the, the government hasn't yet fully accepted that this the size of its failure, but it's it's close to doing so now, I think, and it's it's no longer what it was. You know, it's not as arrogant or as confident of itself uh, as it used to be, and its response to so many crises is to throw up its hands and look somewhere else and and just do nothing. We've seen it over and over again, and which is a sort of acceptance of failure, really. So I think that when you get to that position, that that system loses all legitimacy. And you say, why are we putting up with this? And that's a very dangerous point, because then people will head off in other directions. And we're very close to that point now. If you were a physicist, you'd be describing this as just the moments before a phase shift from solid to liquid or liquid to gaseous or gaseous to plasma, I guess. Uh, and it's the, the bubbles are there or the, the fluidity is coming, uh, but it hasn't immediately clicked over to the other. Are, are, you, are, are you really saying that we are at the point now where any, any additional weight on the system could sp spin it off into collapse, failure, pieces, changes? Well, we are close to that, but the situation is not symmetrical. That is to say, as we know, uh, the Western Cape is the part of the country that works best on every index. And it has a much stronger sense of itself and of a possible autonomous future than other parts of the country. So the instinct towards autonomy is not so strong in other parts of the country. But Nonetheless, it exists to some extent in KZN. And, you know, if one part did break off, then I think other parts might follow. But certainly, I think that, you know, it, it is now very clear to everybody, surely, that the whole attempted transformation, which began in 94, has failed. And that this talk about a better life for all, it's not a better life for all at all. It's, it's the opposite in most cases. And uh, the size of the failure is, is very, very great. And I was very struck in the last national election when I was doing some opinion survey work and we had focus groups around the country. And quite spontaneously in several of them, uh, black people said, wouldn't it be good if the whites were back in control for at least a bit in order to sort things out and put things back together again? And that, that idea was brought up and uh, no one, I mean, it wasn't a question which we'd asked for to be discussed. It was just spontaneously there. And I've come across it since in other respects. And it is a very clear, at a, at a very grassroots level, an acceptance that the system has failed and that, you know, one needs to think of other alternatives. Um, that leads me to a question. We In the South African Communist Party the other day, there's a there's been a leadership change 
Uh, I'm not particularly interested in the, the internal dynamics of the party as to why Bladen Zamandi is now finally moving on and uh, uh, other people are, are coming up through the ranks to take the various positions. And Blade's been in charge of that party for decades. Uh, and I guess it was natural and it was time. But my question to you really is, since you, you've been an observer of, uh, of, of this country for such a long time, and uh, leftist politics as well. What, what is the moral force or the intellectual or political force that keeps the Communist Party alive in this country as a separate entity? And why does it have, and why does it continue to have any influence? Well, I think it's a largely artificial situation. I mean, we know that it, it, it doesn't, stand for election, it, it organizes itself separately, but it has no electoral presence. And its prominence is due simply to the fact that A, it has influence with the trade unions, and B, that the ANC gives it prominence and allows its uh, members to sit on ANC lists and get elected and become ministers and so forth. But this is done at the, um, behest of the ANC, and if the ANC didn't want to do that, then I don't think the party could uh, force its way through the door, as it were. And it's clearly very much weaker than it used to be, uh, and its position is really rather tenuous. <coughs> After all, the strongest group on the left is the EFF now, not the Communist Party, and uh, they've certainly got more people on the ground. And, you know, so I think their position is really very weak. And what has happened, of course, is that during the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, the party was dominated to a considerable extent by a very talented generation, which was largely Jewish uh, intellectuals and professionals, and which gave the party uh, a lot of its intellectual leadership. Slovo first, Lionel Bernstein, et cetera, et cetera. And that's gone, you know, that's just disappeared and uh, those people have, have Let me just... Uh, have, and the party now doesn't have any of that uh, intellectual presence uh, and it's really a fairly low-key thing. I mean, Anzamande was never a patch on Chris Harney and, uh, you know, they don't have anything very much to offer. And their, their purchase over Casatu is worth less and less uh, because Casatu itself has lost membership and influence to a great degree. So okay. the answer is it's artificial that it's there at all. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. This is indeed Brooke Spector, and it is indeed the deep dive, and we're back with the final segment of our conversation with R.W. Johnson, author, historian, uh, political analyst, university administrator, and observer of the South African past, present, and future. Uh, I, I, I introduced our, our conversation by asking him if he felt he was something in something of the position of Cassandra and those of you who remember your classical Greek uh, mythology, Cassandra was the uh, 
the daughter of King Priam, and she had been blessed with perfect forward future vision, uh, but cursed with the, the realization that nobody would believe her or listen to her absolutely correct predictions. And uh, she, got, she um, was unable to convince the Trojans to uh, deal appropriately with the Greeks and uh, the rest was Homer's history. Now, Bill, you, you, we've talked a bit about the Communist Party and we've talked a larger picture of South Africa more generally. Um, and I know you've been, uh, how should we say, I, I don't know whether you're a member or, or particularly a, a, a supporter in any formal sense, but what do you think of the current Democratic Alliance and its ability to govern not the Western Cape per se, but to make its mark nationally and have the impact on the entire country uh, going forward? It, it, does it have a hope? Does it have a prayer? Or is it uh, condemned forever to operate within the confounds, uh, the confines of the uh, Western Cape? Well, look, it's uh, clearly the most impressive of South Africa's political parties in the sense that it has a record of anti-apartheid uh, opposition of a very principled kind. And it's also had more success in administering things uh, than any other party. And the, the, the Western Cape is a, is a monument to that. But even where it's in power in uh, other places like Midval, uh, the results are just strikingly better than uh, other people. So, you know, it has that uh, very much to its credit. I think that, and of course, it, I know that it's it's sort of identified in people's minds with the Western Cape, but it has been true uh, pretty well all the way through from 94 that the largest single block of DA support is in Kauteng, actually. Uh, so that... Um, you know, it, it's not just a, a one province party at all. But I think that, um, look, I think there's a problem with, uh, at, at elite level in the DA, that it's, it's less obviously a talented group now than it used to be, even when it was a smaller group. And, um, you know, it's got something close to 80 MPs and not many of us could name more than a dozen or so because they're simply not <coughs> making a strong impact. <coughs> Excuse me. And I think that it's difficult for them to do so. Parliament is not the force that it once was. And, you know, it's had it more than its share of leadership problems. Uh, as we know. So it, it's at the moment, it's struggling. It went through a long period where it had great momentum, where it was gaining one election after another. Uh, then it began to do all sorts of very dubious things and to try to make up for its lack of uh, prominent black faces by catapulting into prominent positions younger black people who had virtually no experience. And of course, this, this was about to fail, and it did. And it produced lots of difficulties, as we know. It was a self-inflicted wound. It didn't need to happen. But the key thing is that it robbed that party of that momentum. And they have been struggling ever since then to regain that momentum. And it's very difficult. 
thing to to, uh, to to regain once you've lost it. So, you know, I, it's difficult to see them gaining sufficiently to fill the gap which is going to be left if the ANC falls back further. But they represent, nonetheless, the largest single block of opposition and probably more managerial and administrative talent there than in any other party. So <coughs> it's, they're bound to be part of the answer in this country if we were to put together an administration of all the talents, they would have to be in it. So, you know, uh, in that sense, their future is, is would looks fairly secure. But the difficulty is, how do they grow from their current position? And that, that currently looks a very difficult uh, thing to achieve. I mean, you mentioned Ibrahim Harvey uh, a little while ago and uh, his his critique of, of uh, labor and the ANC. And he, he issued a, a, a an article uh, which, in a sense, was a uh, was an element of his larger criticism um, a couple of days back, uh, just describing Johannesburg as a city that has uh, failed, and uh, you know we're all the worse off for it, and that it has avoided the uh, the needs of its citizens. Uh, I'm going to let you. Think of, uh, I'd like your response to whether Johannesburg as a city can hang on and become and return or otherwise, uh, are, we, are we doomed to that failure that uh, Mr. Harvey seems to think we're already in? But first we have to go to, let me see, what do I have to do here? Ah, yes, okay. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And we're back in the studio. Well, actually, I'm in my kitchen. Uh, the studio's in the studio, and R.W. Johnson's in his home with a, with a stove in the background. But I, just before our commercial break, I asked him whether Ibrahim Harvey's critique of Johannesburg as a city that has already failed was accurate, or was there hope for a resurrection and revival of the city that we live in? Bill, what do you think? Well, it's sometimes since I've been to Johannesburg, I could see what was happening to that city quite a while ago, and it filled me with gloom. But look, the point I would make is obviously his, his critique is essentially right. But, you know, the question is whether or not the DA plus allies could turn it around in the way that they did Cape Town. And I think that it's a much more difficult task in several ways. First of all, in the Cape, the ANC had only been in power for a few years. It was disastrous. And every week there was a new scandal, a new corruption thing and so on. And indeed, just before the DA won power, uh, the ANC was trying to break up and uh, get rid of the fire brigade on which Cape Town depends every summer to stay in one piece. They wanted to have those jobs to distribute as patronage for other things. And thank God that wasn't allowed to happen. But it nonetheless took the DA quite a while, and they had close to a majority with uh, other smaller parties. And very soon they had an overall majority. And as we know, they've had a long run of 15, 16 years in which to get things more or less the way they wanted. And now in Joburg, 
the ANC has done its worst over more than 20 years. The corruption and incompetence and mismanagement have been enormous over that period. So the damage is much greater. And the DA's position there is very much weaker. It's uh, not in sight of getting a majority and has to depend on difficult uh, shifting coalitions and so forth. So it's a very, very much harder job that it's got there than it had down here. And uh, I, I, you know, it's difficult to be too optimistic about it, frankly. Uh, the thing that quite surprises me is that uh, Gauteng continues to attract more and more population despite the fact that, uh, you know, clearly the bigger city is failing. And that, that's a quite striking fact. But I don't know whether it will go on. Well, but, we're going to have to... Sorry, we're going to have to leave it up there with the okay. big question hanging over the future of Johannesburg. Uh, we don't want to scare the children, but uh, it, it's a problem and we have to cope with it. And uh, I do encourage people to read uh, Ibrahim Harvey's essay as well. But also, I want to thank you, Bill. You, you've been very okay. gracious. I appreciate the time you've given to us. Uh, I enjoy nice. your essays uh, and, your, and your critiques. And I, for one, at least pay close attention to your criticisms of what is, pop, what is likely to be in our future. Again, we've been talking with R.W. Johnson, historian, political scientist, critic, and uh, much more. Uh, this is Brooke Spector with The Deep Dive, and we'll be back again next week with another conversation on a prominent and important topic. Thank you for listening.